We turn to First and Second Samuel this morning, collectively just referred to as Samuel. It's one book, but it was so large you couldn't fit it all on one scroll. So in olden times, when the scriptures were in scrolls, it was divided into two. So we call it First and Second Samuel, but it's really the book of Samuel. And Samuel is a glorious book. And one of the most amazing things about it, it is, it is in Samuel that we learn about the rise of the Messiah. The whole messianic hope that filled God's people in the New Testament days and before was that the Lord would send a Messiah, the son of David, to once and for all deliver his people. And in the book of Samuel, we learn about this messianic beginning. This messianic beginning. And friends, we need a king. We need a king who will deliver us from our enemies. You know, we study the history of wars and of oppression of various kinds all over the world. There's not a continent on earth that has not been touched in one way or another by oppression. And people of all, of all uh, tribes and tongues and nations have experienced oppression and have cried out for liberation. But ultimately, there are only two kingdoms on earth. There is the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and there is the kingdom of the devil. There are really ultimately only two kingdoms, and we need deliverance. We need deliverance. And the message of Samuel is that the Lord will raise his Messiah. His anointed one will be exalted, and his kingdom shall be forever. And there are many connections, as I hope you have guessed by the scripture readings already for us today, in our own need for a king to deliver us from all of our enemies. An enemy far greater than any dictator, human dictator on this earth, and indeed. So we come to Samuel, and we're going to take a walk through this book as we've been going, uh, going on in our series, Walk Through the Bible. My goal today is to walk through this book with you, and I hope that you'll have a greater sense of the, of the message and of the structure of the book for your own studies in the future. And I would encourage you to read along with me. Uh, read these books either after the message or before the message, whatever is more helpful for you. And I hope that these outlines and melodic lines that I give you will, will be a, a useful guide to you in understanding the Word of God better. Turn to page 7 of your worship folder, and we'll look at the melodic line or the summary of Samuel here together. I'll read it for you. The book of Samuel, known as First and Second Samuel, is about the rise of the Messiah, which means anointed one. That's what Messiah means. In the last days of the judges, Israel demanded a king like all the other nations, Their request was a rejection of the Lord as king. But God told Samuel the prophet to answer their request. God gave them Saul, a king truly like the nations. But Saul's rejection of the Lord's word led to his downfall. 
And out of the ashes of Saul's rejected kingship, the Lord tells Samuel to anoint David king, a man after his own heart. And while the Lord never rejects David, David's reign, which begins triumphantly, is also plagued by failure and tragedy. Nevertheless, the Lord makes an everlasting covenant with David to raise up for him a son, and he will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The New Testament reveals that the only king that can rule God's people is God himself. God sends his own son, the Lord Jesus, to be the anointed son of David, the Messiah, which in Greek means Christ, whose kingdom shall have no end. Samuel has an amazing structure to it. Although every time I get to a book, I think this is one of the coolest structures of any book in the Bible. So the Lord is good at writing. Uh, Very good. God knows what he's doing. And Samuel is structured around the lives of three principal figures, Samuel, Saul, and David. But there's also another structure that is that is really uh, amazing. There, the end of the book uh, concludes with an epilogue with a chiastic structure that juxtaposes the failure of Saul and David with God's faithfulness, covenant faithfulness to David and to his anointed one. But then actually the whole book itself is also a chiastic structure. So that word chiastic, we've used that before, is this envelope kind of structure. If you think of like an envelope with a triangle, you have a, a beginning and an end that mirror each other. And then the middle has an emphasis uh, to it. Um, and there are three poetic sections, one at the beginning of First Samuel, one at the end of Second Samuel, and then one at the beginning of Second Samuel. And you have this chiastic structure that also highlights how God will exalt his anointed one and tear down the mighty and tear down the mighty. So I've given you kind of a a picture of that in this brief literary outline where the book begins with Samuel, who is the last judge. So we begin still in the days of the judges and we have Hannah, the childless, who will become the mother of Samuel. And then Eli, the priest, a wicked priest who gets torn down, him and his sons. And then Samuel, the last judge, gets exalted. There's this theme of being uh, exalted and torn down that happens through the whole book. And you see it in these poetic structures. Then we come to Saul, the first king, and we see the rise of Saul. And then we see the fall of Saul and the rise of David. And then the third section, which begins in 2 Samuel 1, shows David as the first king of the everlasting kingdom. And we see David and his kingdom, and we come to this most important, one of the most important passages in the whole Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, which we read, the Davidic covenant. And we think everything is going to be great from here on out. But then the second half of David's reign, we see David and the sword. When the Lord says the, the sword will not depart from the house of David because of his sin with Bathsheba and killing Uriah the Hittite. Uh, and nothing but sword and plague comes upon David and tragedy and rebellion for the rest of his reign. And then we come to this epilogue, which is really amazing. It begins with Saul's treachery and the death of seven of his sons. 
And then the book ends, if you look at A prime, with David's pride and the death of 70,000 Israelites. So we have this A and this A prime. And then in the second part there, B, we have David's giant killers and David's mighty men, B and B prime, if you look there. And then in the middle, we have two, uh, a final, a third poetic section in two parts where David sings of the Lord's eternal faithfulness to him and to the anointed. And then in the part B, David uh, sings of the Lord's eternal covenant made with him. So it's a very beautiful structure, and I hope that will help you in your own studies as you read and kind of figure out where are you and what is the writer here trying to emphasize. So that's an overview of Samuel. What I'd like to do today is really just focus on three, three points with you together. And the first one is this, is that Israel's request for a king is the ultimate rejection of Yahweh. Israel's request for a king is the ultimate rejection of Yahweh. So what, when I say Yahweh, what am I saying? This is my test to see how you've been listening so far. Who is Yahweh? Yeah, God, that's right. It's the personal name of God. Uh, they call it, the, this is a big $5 word, the tetragrammaton. There's four consonants that uh, make up the personal name of God, Y H. W H Y H W H Yahweh, which means I am what I am. Genesis three four or Exodus three fourteen and fifteen, and uh, and following. It's the personal name of God. In older translations, you might read Jehovah. So if you've ever heard the name Jehovah, that's an older rendering of the of the name Yahweh. But at any rate. Israel's request for a king is ultimately a rejection of Yahweh, of the Lord as king. Turn to 1 Samuel 8. We're just going to focus on a few passages this morning in our, in our study. But if you look at 1 Samuel 8, we see this rejection of Yahweh as king. We read in 8, starting verse 1, When Samuel became old... He made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. 
So at this point in the days of the judges, remember what is the great theme that is repeated in, in Judges? In those days there was no king and each one did what was right in his own eyes. And Judges is about that downward spiral of rebellion and the Lord would save them and raise up a judge. And then when the judge died, they would be worse than their forefathers. So they just go down and down and down and down. And they worship the gods of the nations. And, all of, and they practice all of their abominable practices. And Israel is fed up with Samuel. Maybe even Samuel faltered in his later days because normally judges wouldn't appoint their sons as judges. The only one who did that was Gideon, who got into a lot of problems, if you remember, in Judges. And so they said, we've had enough. We want a king, just like all the other nations. So Israel's already taken the worship of all the nations, the abominable, immoral practices of all the nations, and now they're, we want a king like all the nations too. We just want to be like everybody else. And Samuel has to be feeling discouraged, and the Lord encourages them and says, go ahead and obey their voice, give them what they want, for they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me as being king over them. So what follows then is a grand experiment. God giving the people what they want. You know, sometimes we get discouraged when God doesn't answer our prayers. He doesn't answer them at least the way we want the Lord to. But have you ever thought it might be a scary thing if God answers some of your prayers? And here God gives Israel what they want. You know, it reminds me of Romans 1, where, where the, the world has rebelled against God, and so God gave them over to a debased mind. God gave mankind autonomy from him. Say, so, okay, you want it your way? I'll give you what you want. And they have a debased mind. And, and so now we're in this great experiment, human experiment. What will happen when God is not king? And he lets humans be kings of his people. And God tells Samuel, you, won't, won't, you know, before the deal's settled, before the, the, before the ink is dry, why don't you go ahead and tell Israel what it's going to be like. And so in verse 10 of chapter 8 here, we read, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to his horsemen and to run before his, his chariots. So in other words, he's going to be like Putin, you know, who's just taking conscripts from all over Russia, send them into battle and to die for his crazy ends, Right? He's going to take, they're going to take your sons and appoint them to chariots to fight his wars. Verse 12, And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and will give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain 
and of your vineyards and give it to his officers. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. What's the repeated word or phrase here, guys? He will take, he will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. Go ahead and you can count that if you want. How many times we see that he will take. He's taking your people. He's going to take your children. He's going to take your resources for his ends. And in the day you realize this was a really bad deal, you will cry out to me and I will not answer you. That is the warning that God gives. It is a scary thing when the Lord answers some of our prayers that are not rightly aligned to his will and to be left to ourselves. You know, all of mankind wants freedom and autonomy. That's the great, I think, end of at least the Western world. We love autonomy, individuality, freedom to choose our own way. But that's actually the most scary thing you could ever choose. It's the most damning fate you could ever choose for yourself. But anyways, verse 19, Israel goes on, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. So that is the great experiment. What happens when God is not king? And we've seen here that in calling for a king, Israel has rejected Yahweh as their king. The one who gives and gives and gives will now be replaced by one who takes and takes and takes. And we have this great experiment in the rest of, of First and Second Samuel. And that experiment will go on in, in the book of Kings as well, as we'll get to next week. And so then we come to our second point. Uh, that even the best man proves unable to serve as Yahweh's replacement. Even the best man proves unable to serve as a replacement for Yahweh. So we are we're going we're going across this ground in Samuel very quickly. Between this demand and the rise of David is the rise of Saul. And Saul is the most he's called in chapter 9 the most handsome man in Israel. Saul, the most handsome man in Israel. And he is also uh, described as being a head taller than anyone else in Israel. In other words, he's a giant. And don't you need a giant to kill the giants that are in the land? Israel chooses a giant to be a giant killer. The most handsome man. They select this guy that looks externally like the best candidate. 
And in the course of time, Saul starts out looking good, but then he rejects the word of the Lord by holding uh, on to valuable things in a battle that were to be sacrificed and given to the Lord. And the Lord rejects him as king. And so we come then to David. In the midst of this, David rises to the scene, first in Saul's court and then later as the king of Israel. But what we're going to find is that even David will not be good enough. Even David will not be good enough. I read for you, and, and I'll get to this in our third point, God's covenant with David. But right after that, we think everything, this is like a high point for Israel. We think it's just got to keep getting better from here after the words that God said to David in this covenant. Surely this is the time when the kingdom will come. But no, after that covenant, everything goes south. Chapters, if you look in your outline there, uh, David and the sword, chapters 11 to 20 are nothing but trouble for David. So it starts out with David having an affair with Bathsheba when he should have been out in battle. He stayed home and sent Joab and his army out to do his work. And he got himself in trouble. And not only did he have an affair with Bathsheba, but to secure her as his wife, he also executed one of his mighty men, Uriah the Hittite. Uh, but in a subtle way by sending him out in battle and then having the troops pull back so Uriah would be left alone and slaughtered by the enemy. It was a, a cruel and bitter act of treachery to a man who was loyal to David. It's, it's awful. And then we come to chapter 12 then where the Lord rebukes David through Nathan. And turn to that chapter if you would. I want to read that for you. In chapter 12, we read, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight 
You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And so because of that act of treachery, the Lord says to Nathan that the sword shall never depart from your house. And so in this final section of David's life, it's nothing but sword and treachery and betrayal. And this, this section of David and the sword that I've given to you is, is, has three smaller sections in it. One, a section dealing with David and Bathsheba that even leads also, as, uh, if, you, if we read further in this chapter, the death of David and Bathsheba's first child. So we have this, this thing with David and Bathsheba, and then we have this huge problem with David and Absalom, which is one of David's sons. One of David's other sons raped his half-sister, David's daughter. David doesn't really do anything about it. And so Absalom takes vengeance and kills his brother to avenge his sister and then goes on to rebel against David and David has to flee Jerusalem. And Absalom takes on the throne and this leads to more treachery and more battle and eventually the execution of David's son, Absalom. And so we have this issue with David and Bathsheba and the death of a son, the issue of David and Absalom. And then at the end of the section, uh, the third and final section, David and Shiva, which that part's not in your, uh, your outline I've given to you, but it's under David and the sword, David and Shiva, another rebellion. And so the rest of David's tenure as king is filled with treachery, bloodshed, and rebellion as a result of this. David, too, is clearly not a fitting substitute for Yahweh as king. So this human experiment of humans being kings and deciding their own laws and ruling autonomously themselves has proved to be nothing but a failure, even in the best of times. Even with David in all of his glory and triumph as the shepherd boy who defeats Goliath, uh, the writer of the Psalms that we sing and worship still today, even great David is not able to be a fitting replacement for Yahweh. So then that brings us to our third and final point then, that nevertheless, Yahweh has promised David an eternal kingdom through his anointed son, the Messiah. Nevertheless, Yahweh has promised to David an eternal kingdom through his anointed son, the Messiah. And that is what we are going to spend the rest of our time looking at. And this is really the bulk of the greater structure and emphasis of Samuel as a whole. Remember we talked about some of those chiasms. I want to look at that more closely with you and then look again at the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. So please turn your Bible back to 1 Samuel chapter 2. I want to look at this first poetic section with you. 1 Samuel 2. It's really the theme of this third point is the rise of the Messiah, 
and the need for God to be king. There are three poetic sections in Samuel's. I've said already that, that bookend the, the books of First and Second Samuel and then are also the hinge point in the, the middle of it. And I'll show you all three of those points now. We'll walk through them. The first poetic section is Hannah's prayer. So Hannah comes onto the scene as a barren woman who is, uh, she, she has uh, uh, not been able to conceive children. The other wife in the household derides her and makes fun of her and scorns her. And Hannah's filled with grief because she can't have any children. But in the course of time, she makes a vow to the Lord that she would dedicate, she would lend her son to the Lord if she gave him a son uh, and would uh, fulfill the Nazarite vow. This vow of a Nazarene would dedicate uh, the son to the Lord and the Lord gives Hannah a son. And after he is weaned, Samuel, that is, she leaves him at the house of the Lord with Eli in Shiloh. And then we have this beautiful prayer that not only sets forward the, all the great themes of the book of Samuel, but also becomes mirrored with Mary, the, son, or the mother of the Son of God, as well. So look here, let's look at 1 Samuel 2 here. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts. I want you to, uh, by the way, while I read this, I want you to look for the themes of raising up and taking down. Okay, so look for that. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none like, none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. The Lord brings down a shoal and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of the faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And here's the great theme. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his Messiah. His anointed. This phrase, his anointed in Hebrew, is his Messiah. So, this great expectation of a Messiah to come is really birthed here in Hannah's song. The Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And if you, in your own study, take all of these themes the raising and the lowering, the exalting and the tearing down, This is the book of Samuel. 
And you can follow all these themes, these themes like a beautiful symphony and find all of these themes woven throughout the entire work together with the great theme being the exaltation of the Messiah. We come, I want to, so we get, you can get a, the best sense of the, the chiasm here. I want to take you now to the last poetic section and then we'll come back to the middle section. So turn to 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22. In 2 Samuel 22, and hear the repeated themes from Hannah's song. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the ways of death encompassed me, encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and from and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. And the Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. When the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he, here's the theme again, drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from the strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord is my support and brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God for all his rules were before me and from his statutes. I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. And he goes on, but I'll take you just um, lastly to verse 47. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation who gave me vengeance and brought down 
peoples under me, who brought me out of my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his Messiah, to his anointed, to David and to his offspring forever. And then in the last section, in uh, 23, David gives his last words. And I just want to point out one thing, verse 5, chapter 23, where David says, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered all things, and secure. So we see the bookend of this theme. God is raising up the humble, and he's most importantly exalting his Messiah, his anointed one, which will come through David, and he's tearing down the proud. So you see this positional up, down, up, down, up, down, raising, exalting, tearing down, bringing down the mighty theme throughout the whole. So now let's go to the center of the chiasm and tie this together in Second uh, Samuel chapter 1. Second Samuel chapter 1. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Saul and Jonathan die. They, they've fallen on the battlefield. And David says three times how the mighty have fallen. In verse 19, your glory, that is Saul, your glory, O Israel, slain in your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Verse 21, the second part of verse 21. Um, it's talking about the shield of the mighty was defiled. But verse 25 again, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. In verse 27, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. So this great human experience of what happens when humans, the mighty ones in our eyes, get to be king and make the decisions, how they fall. Oh, how they fall. Which is a warning to us and to our nations today as well. If we run our nations or the church after the eyes of men and in the way men would want them to be run. David will sing of us, Oh, how the mighty have fallen. But even despite, even David's inability to be a replacement for Yahweh as king, the Lord has promised David a kingdom forever. A kingdom forever. And we saw that emphasized at the end of both of uh, David's final words in the book, both an emphasis on his eternal hesed. This word hesed, remember we talked about it last week with Ruth, this, this covenant faithfulness, this steadfast love. God has promised eternal hesed, eternal faithfulness to his Messiah, which will come from David, but also that God has promised to keep and has made with David an eternal covenant, an eternal covenant that will last forever, that will not be abrogated or substituted by something to come later. And I want to point this out to you uh, as we conclude this third point. 
and look at the Lord's covenant with David. 2 Samuel 7 is one of the most important Bible passages in the whole Old Testament. If there were four passages that link the whole Old Testament to the New, could you name them? I won't, I, I won't play with you too much and, and tease you, but let me, let me give them to you. And we, two of them we've already seen so far in our walk through the Bible series. If you drew like four mountain peaks, got this from my professor, Walter Kaiser. Um, the first is Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. Remember what happens in Genesis 3.15? We are promised that the seed or the offspring of Eve will crush or bruise the head of the serpent. We have this, it's called, the, the old theologians called this the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, that the, that the offspring of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15, that is a critical text in the Old Testament. The next mountain peak is Genesis 12.3, where God makes his covenant with Abraham and says that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the Abrahamic covenant is inaugurated, which is a continuation of this promise that the seed of Eve would crush the head of the serpent, so that offspring travels from Eve to Abraham's offspring. And now in this passage, 2 Samuel 7, we have the third mountain peak. The third mountain peak, where this offspring of Abraham boils down to David. But what we see in this covenant with David is all the same promises that God makes to Abraham. And I want to point those out to you uh, quickly here in 2 Samuel 7. So just keep that passage open and I'll point to a few verses since we already read it as our scripture reading today. But in verse 9, the second half, 9b, the Lord says, And I will make for you a great name. I will make for you a great name like the great ones of the earth. And that ties us back to Genesis 12, 2, when God promised Abraham that I will give you a great name. So this theme of having a great name continues with David. So I want you to see continuity in the covenants and the promises that God is making in the Old Testament. That's critical for our understanding of the meaning of the Old Testament. Verse 10, we find another theme that comes from Abraham's covenant. The Lord says, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And in Genesis twelve or sorry, Genesis fifteen seven, God making his covenant again with Abraham promises Abraham a place, the land of Canaan. God promises rest for all of uh, Israel's enemies. But then in verse 12, we read, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. And there we see a connection both to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, You remember what the Lord tells Abraham to do? He says, look up at the stars. If you can count the number of the stars, so shall your offspring be. And he promised Abraham a nation. And here, the Lord tells David, 
in full continuity with the Abrahamic covenant now being made with the Davidic covenant, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And that promise of a kingdom goes back to Genesis 49 where Jacob blesses Judah and says, the scepter shall never depart from your house. And David comes from Judah. So we see all of these promises made in the Old Testament so far, which when we read, they can, they can just be overwhelming reading the Old Testament. It's all coming together in these, these key critical mountaintop kind of moments. It's like we're going on the mountaintop and getting a clear view of the land. And it, everything's being buttoned up and tied together in this covenant. In verse 15, my steadfast Love will not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And then we get an even greater promise in 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So we have this promise of the eternal kingdom. And we, and we wonder, and they would wonder in this day, is this going to be Solomon in all of his glory? as we'll, we'll study next week in Kings. No, it ain't going to be Solomon. He's going to have a pretty hard time of it as well. Is it going to be Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the sons that divide the kingdoms? No, it's just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. And so we'll come to the days of the intertestamental period, the days of silence and the prophets were no longer speaking and God's people are wondering what is going to happen. Will God be faithful to these words? And the great messianic hope remains. And then out of this darkness, light shines. And the angel Gabriel comes and appears to a woman without child. And says, do not be afraid, Mary. Don't be afraid, For you have found favor with God. This is Luke 1, 30 and following. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. And there is our connection to the message of the Old Testament and the messianic hope. How is all this going to be fulfilled? What was promised to Abraham and to David? It's coming in Jesus, the Messiah. The word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, or Christ means anointed. Messiah is Hebrew for anointed. That's why we call him Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. But we have a, a, a hope even beyond Jesus' first coming that he will come again. And we, we, you know, we sing these psalms of lament and, we, and I was telling you about the tension between what is and what we experience. It will be resolved when the Lord returns. And this Davidic eternal kingdom theme comes to a head in Revelation 11. When we read, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord 
and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And that great messianic hope that was begun with Hannah, the childless, the barren woman, who by the grace of God was given a child and gave all of Israel the hope of a Messiah, all of that will come to pass world without end when our Lord Jesus returns and he shall reign forever and ever. There are so many other wonderful themes I could I would love to point out to you, but I don't have the time in Samuel. For example, Hannah being barren and having a, a Nazarite son in Samuel who will anoint David and John the Baptist who becomes a Nazarene who will anoint Jesus, baptize it with his baptism. There's so many wonderful themes. Hannah's song to Mary's song. There's so many glorious themes to study. And I hope that this just kind of gets you salivating and, and hungry to study this book for yourself and discover these amazing themes. The themes of God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There's so many things that we could unpack, but the main thing is what I wanted to focus on, which is the rise of the Messiah. And I will end with this. Why did Jesus need to come to earth to save his people? Because only God can be king. Only God can be king. Even the best man on earth will fail. And that's why God had to send his own son, the divine son of God, so that God would be king of his people once more. So my challenge to you as I close, it's easy to point the finger at the world, to look out the window, see people not worshiping the Lord on the Sabbath day or whatever else it might be. But let me ask you, who is your God? What do your actions and your hopes, what do your anxieties and fears tell you about who is your God? I can tell you as a pastor, I wrestle with anxiety fairly regularly. And when I'm doing that, I am making myself God. So who are you looking to to save you? From the big problems like what will happen when you die to the little problems like will bread be on the table next week? Or whatever, fill in whatever your anxieties are. As long as you look to yourself to solve your own problems, it's going to be disastrous. Only God can be king. So I want to leave by just encouraging you this week to maybe take some time to journal. What are your worries? What are your anxieties? What are uh, your goals for your life? What are your hopes and aspirations? And how do those line up? with God and his will for you and the reality that God is king. And what do you need to confess to him? And there is a lot of healing that comes when you just write things out and can see them and go back to them. There's a lot of healing and a lot of sanctification and hope and joy that comes through that exercise because it's an exercise whereby you can solidify your faith in God and your resolution to look to him as your savior and as your king. So I encourage you to do that this week. Let's pray.